Hello and welcome to the Unheard Weekly podcast with me, Aisha Hazarika. So our format for this podcast and what we try and do at Unheard is we try and talk about stories which we think are important but are sometimes underreported by the mainstream media. And we always have fascinating discussion and learn something from us. So today I'm delighted to be joined by two very special guests, Rachel Shabby, who is a very prolific journalist, broadcaster and commentator for The Guardian. And she was previously a real expert on the Middle East and was based there for five years. And I'm delighted as well to be joined by Christina Patterson, who is a journalist, broadcaster and author of a forthcoming book, The Art of Not Falling Apart. Hello to you both. And uh, Christina, tell us a wee bit about your book. Well, it's essentially about how we cope when life goes wrong. It's a mix of memoir and interviews. It starts with my slightly dramatic firing from The Independent five years ago. And uh, I've talked to people in all kinds of situations, ranging from job loss to illness to bereavement to being single to having children, not having children, having disappointing children, all kinds of different scenarios. So it's kind of about resilience, really, and how we pick ourselves up and find a way forward. And what a good lesson for everyone, whatever walk of life you're in, resilience and things going wrong sound incredibly uh, good. Now, I'm going to start with the first underreported story. Uh, Rachel, uh, would you want to tell us about what you've picked out? Yeah. So this is about, it's a story from Israel and it's about the prime minister there, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, who uh, very swiftly in the space of a few hours reneged on a deal over refugees in Israel uh, with the UN. This deal was very welcome um, by many, many people, not least the actual refugees, uh, 30 to 40,000 in Israel, mostly African, mostly uh, Eritrean and Sudanese. Um, Now, a lot of them, obviously, there are now children who are raised in Israel and are to all intents and purposes Israeli. Um, This has been an issue that uh, Israeli society has really uh, not responded well to. Uh, There has been a lot of quite straightforward racism towards these refugees um, and the government has not really wanted to allow them to stay. So finally, um, having threatened to deport them if they didn't leave, um, which was met with a lot of pushback from a lot of Israeli campaigners, rabbis, doctors, uh, pilots refusing to fly planes that would deport them. Um, Lots of human rights organizations pushing back at this because, of course, Israel is a state made up of refugees. So it's quite a sort of visceral reaction amongst many people. Um, After threatening to deport them, the government agreed with the UN a deal by which some 15,000 were going to be resettled in the West, Western countries, and the remainder would be allowed to stay. But within hours, Netanyahu said, no, we're not doing this. He's part of a very right-wing coalition government. Um, The popular mood is not in favour of such a deal. And so it was quite dispiriting, and especially because this actually happened during the Jewish festival of Passover, Mm. which is all about freedom. So just as human rights organisations inside Israel were celebrating with these refugees the sort of freedom-infused deal agreed with the UN, it was it was revoked. So a very sort of disappointing roller coaster of emotions there that has now left these refugees in limbo. And why did why did he agree to it, knowing 
that there was going to be such a, a kickback from his his very right wing coalition partners. Well, I think he's playing he's playing politics um, on the international circuit as much as he is inside Israel. He is a master of this. I think he basically wrote the textbook for Trump. He out trumps Trump, um, and he uh, his own political fortune is very precarious at the moment. He has um, potentially a couple of uh, corruption cases and certainly charges against him, sorry, not charges against him, but investigations into whether there can be uh, charges charges brought brought or, or at least an inquiry brought. So his situation is quite precarious. Um, And in a theme that will be familiar to a lot of people in Britain with a Brexit conversation, uh, it means that he is quite weak as a leader and is kind of at the mercy. He's sort of caught between two camps. Camps that he can never really fully satisfy. And and what happens now um, to these refugees? And I have to say, I was astonished. I did not realise that the figure was that high Mm. of African refugees in, in Israel, what happens to those people now? It's a it's a very it's a very familiar story that there are these African refugees in Israel. Of course, it's a it's an it's a story that's happening around the world. They are there for the same reasons that most refugees are um, fleeing most countries' war, persecution, um, and they don't know what will happen to them now. They are actually in limbo, um, and it's what what struck me about this is how. Most of these refugees are actually in in a in an area of Tel Aviv that is quite impoverished, and this is quite a familiar story in the sense that uh, a lot of them are already very traumatized. Uh, I went to Israel to write about them in 2015, and you know they have some horrendous stories just of their arrival oh, into uh, Israel uh, And often Egypt. the journeys are horrendous, involving for women prostitution, for men, you know, just a huge Torture, violence, violence, sexual violence. Horrendous. Absolutely. Horrendous. So they've, they've arrived and they're already in shock. And then their, um, their lives are completely precarious. You know, quite a lot of them are in hiding. They fear being caught by, you know, border police, deportation police. They're very underground. And as quite often happens with people who have no legal status, they have no right to work. Um, you know, they can't really find uh, the things that most of us take for granted to hold our lives together. And so, as a result, have to live in this sort of fairly twilight existence. And they're doing so in an area that's already impoverished, right? So, of course, there's going to be tensions tensions there. And that particular area, to add another twist to the Israeli story, is a population of people who are mostly um, Jews from Arab lands, who in any case suffered a sort of historical social and economic discrimination in Israel for being viewed as slightly lesser Jews who came from the Middle East and therefore were inferior. So they already have that uh, historical baggage of discrimination. And they've already been marginalised. They've already been marginalised. So now, this is not in in any way to justify their response to the refugees, but that is what it is being infused with. That is the context. And it is a context that is evocative of situations around around the West at the moment. But, but just to broaden it out, I mean, Christina, this this story, this this tragic tale about these dispossessed refugees, particularly from Africa, but Syria as well, 
you know, w- what is the solution? You know, <laughs> what, what, you know, it's as it we have it in Europe. It's obviously a, a huge issue, like all over the, the sort of Western. What, 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 what do we do? Well, thank you for asking me such an easy question. Could you solve really, it? Yeah, I'm just waiting for someone to ask. Could you me do so a hashtag? Could you ask her in a hashtag <laughs> so I can sort the whole thing out? Um, it is. It is. A very well, it's an impossible situation actually. And although it's clear that uh, Benjamin Netanyahu has has made these decisions for cynical reasons and to do with the corruption um, allegations and so on, um, I do also sympathise because it's a it's a kind of impossible situation. And I, I go to Italy a lot, and there are huge numbers of African migrants, stroke refugees there, wandering around, and a lot of people do feel quite unsafe and threatened by them. Um, And I think Angela Merkel made a huge mistake when she said her we can do this thing, because look what's happened. Look at the backlash in in Germany. She didn't ask the German people whether they wanted a million uh, extra people to come into the country who were not prepared to be there. I think... I think it's. I think that the the laws as they currently exist about um, definitions of refugees are actually need addressing again because the world has changed and actually you could pretty much argue that vast swathes of the world outside Western Europe or say Israel um, would count as you know, people would pretty much count as refugees. Whether you classify them as economic migrants or refugees is a kind of an academic point because they live in, many of them, in horrible countries with vicious governments, with very few human rights at at levels of standards of living that we would regard as poverty. And you absolutely can't blame people for wanting to escape from that. And to build, to have a better life, it's a human Uh, Yes, and, and and the vast majority are young men, often very young men. If you go to places like Calais, obviously that's now been, uh, you know, that's that the camp was demolished but uh, it's generally huge numbers of young men and we have a ridiculous system whereby essentially it's the survival of the fittest and we hand this system over to the people smugglers and whoever can we whoever can get the most money to get these people in rickety boats across oceans to Lampedusa or wherever these people are the ones who get in and then they face a horrible time when they get to their new countries it's a crazy system and i'm afraid when you hear people wringing their hands, uh, quite often on the left, quite often, you know, sometimes bishops saying we must be more compassionate. I want to say, well, how exactly would you define compassion in the circumstance? How many is enough? Because it is literally a kind of infinite, not literally, but, you know, there are a lot of people in the world. And outside Western Europe, there are a lot of people who would love to live here. Absolutely rightly. We don't have, it's not, it's our arbitrary good fortune that we live in these wealthy countries. However, we can't accommodate all these people and we have to have a different system. I don't know what it is, but I do know that the current system isn't working. So, Rachel, what do you say to that? I mean, I have to say I had quite a lot of admiration for Angela Merkel did. I know it was controversial. I know it, you know, she had a huge amount of kickback. It probably caused her a lot of political damage. But I think her intentions were very good. And also, I think she was pragmatic because Germany has a low birth rate. And she does realise actually bringing migrants is is quite smart. They work very, very hard. And, you know, there's, there's an economic uplift. But how do we square this circle? Because, you know, we know that, you know, people are fleeing from these parts of the world to our part of the world can we let everybody in? What do we do? What is what would what would you do? I mean, I think there's a couple of things going on here. First of all, most people would rather um, stay. Quite a lot of people would rather, given the choice, not have to flee persecution and violence. Would rather stay where they are with most, their families. With their and... families. Most refugees actually either either migrate internally, so 
say, look at a continent of Africa, most people are migrating internally or to neighbouring countries, as is what happened with the Middle East and the Syrian can, can I just Can I just say, sorry, that we're not just talking refugees because we are talking people generally, migrants generally. Absolutely. And, and there I, are great swathes in you know, Eritrea. I mean, you can categorise people as fleeing violence. or But in, in many of the countries, there is literally, it is kind of the fashion for the young men in the village to go off and seek a better life. They've all got smartphones. They, they think they can get a better life here. Who can blame them? But they're not necessarily fleeing violence or persecution. They're fleeing, what you know, misery and poverty, which is entirely understandable. But but can we in the West accommodate all those people? I don't think we can. So what I, what I wanted to say to that was, was actually the, the, the second point, which is... Um, you know, a lot, a lot of this stuff is being manipulated. So when you look actually at the Israeli situation, it's a very good example of, you know, Israeli ministers have described the refugees as a cancer. Um, Netanyahu himself has been to the area in Tel Aviv uh, where most of the re- refugees are and said that they they are responsible for the economic conditions in that area. And that is precisely the problem, that you can't have it both ways. Um Bringing in, you can bring in refugees if you explain why there are refugees, and that includes economic refugees. And the answer is economic. The answer is that it's not just our arbitrary good fortune that we live in one of the wealthiest countries in the world. The answer is that actually we live in a globalized system where for us to be one of the wealthiest countries in the world, that relies on other people being less fortunate. It is absolutely connected mm, to the system. I so agree. Unless I agree you, with that. Unless so, how many have, do you, so how many do you let in? So unless you have an economic explanation for this, unless you there say, yeah. unless you you say, listen, this is why this is happening. Of course. And actually, what we're worried about, what we want to do economically is deal with wealth redistribution, not just globally, but obviously nation per nation, then none of this is going to make sense. And it will all be ex- abused by the right. So you, you can't have the migration argument without having a completely different economic system in place. I mean, one of the things which is very interesting about this is it does make you have to look economics far more broadly and for all the people on the right who go nuts about the fact that people are fleeing from countries like Africa yet at the same time are like let's cut the age budget and let's not kind of give any aid to these countries I mean that's a sort of self defeating argument from from that point but look I'm just conscious of time so I just want to move us on to our next underreported story Uh, Christina over Mm. to you so this was a story, um, I think, on Sunday about uh, female-only compartments um, on the Caledonian sleeper service. And um, there's been a, a, a little row on Mumsnet um, uh, where women have objected to the fact that uh, transgender people are be, are using the, uh, or, you know, that the, the official policy is for transgender uh, people to use the female-only compartments. And uh, Rupert Soames, um, who's the CEO of Serco, which runs Caledonian Sleeper Service, and by the way, Churchill's grandson, um, uh, responded to an objection by someone from Mumsnet by saying, "I think you are referring to the possibility that people may say that they are a woman when in fact they are a man." Sigh, an incredibly patronising uh, response. And um, I raised this uh, story because I think it is a really important issue. And I think we're going through a kind of revolution in this country, which I think started with, um, well, all kinds of complex uh, sources. But Maria Miller, who was then the Minister of Women, um, decided that uh, there should be... um, 
self-identification, that that would be a better a better way of approaching the whole um, transgender issue than the current system. And uh, Justine Greening uh, agreed with that. And so the, the issue now is that... Um, being transgender, well, gender is now regarded as an issue of identity and not of biology. And now, of course, there have always been transgender people. And of course, I hope that any civilised society would, um, you know, try to be inclusive uh, in, you know, in, in as many ways as possible. But my own feeling is that the previous system where you had kind of two years of reflection and you you needed an, um, a diagnosis of, of uh, gender dysphoria was working relatively well. And now we have introduced a system where... Um, Anyone, well, any man essentially can wake up in the morning and decide that he now wants to be treated as a woman um, and be allowed into women-only spaces, even if those are swimming pools or changing rooms or prisons for that matter, and society should allow this to happen. And there have been two big responses to this. One is that some women say, hang on, I don't think just because you say you are a woman, you are a woman. Um, sorry, but, you know, as far as it seems to me, you are a man with the current levels of testosterone and indeed a penis. And um, I don't feel particularly happy having you with your beard and your penis in my changing room or whatever. Um, and as we know, I mean, the sexual uh, uh, violence is, you know, we can argue about how high an occurrence that is in society, but it's certainly, I think there are 50 sex offenders amongst men for every female sex offender so it's not an entirely anxiety-free um, area from that front alone. But the other area, which I'm much more worried about, um, because I'm not particularly bothered whether someone, a man who says he is a woman, who I am meant to treat as a transgender as a trans woman, sleeps in the same compartment as me. But I'm really worried about what's happening in primary schools and schools across the country where children are being actively encouraged to question their gender identity. There are all kinds of blogs and um, websites and uh, social media movements encouraging children to question their identity. Um, uh, young girls, uh, referrals to uh, the Tavistock Clinic have gone up, I think, a thousand percent in four years and a lot of young people are having surgery which they may go on to regret and I so, just think there's a kind of bit of hysteria going on here. So uh, just to put, I mean I'm sure Rachel's got thoughts on this but the, I mean the, the counter view of course is that actually trans children or particularly at school are, are have a horrific time in terms of their mental health issues. Um, there's a lot of abuse. Um, Self-harm is very high in that kind of um, category as well. And that actually some argue that actually people feel they know from an early age and why shouldn't they be allowed to sort of expedite the medical process early? And also, I mean, just to, I guess, you know, push back, and I, I know this is a very, very controversial area. People feel really, really strongly about it on both sides. Do you not worry that you may be on the wrong side of history with this argument? Mm. And some of these arguments were the arguments that were used against, you know, when people were coming out as gay yes. and lesbian people. Do you do you not sort of worry, gosh, you know, I'm going to look back at these words in the future and actually I'm, I, I may well have got it wrong? Yes, of course I may well have got it wrong. You know, we all change our minds all the time as we learn more and see more. So I may have got it wrong. But my current feeling is I don't think it is in the same category as 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 the whole gay and lesbian thing. I really don't. And I think that 
Um, I think that so many things in life come down to fashion, actually, and that's not to trivialise them or make them sound frivolous, because I think huge amounts about how we live our lives is to do with kind of cultural shifts in fashion. But I actually think that those those transgender children, there were very tiny numbers of them throughout history. The number of people who have felt that they were gay has been fairly consistent throughout although, history. Although you could argue that in certain sectors are still very taboo. So isn't it interesting that in the entire world of football there's literally no gay men do we believe that for a minute of course we well, don't because no. there is still quite a social taboo around it and I suppose as well again just to play the devil's advocate here in terms of the fashion thing I think to transition is a huge thing yes but they're thing, not transitioning that's the, the point that's my point I have no objection to people wanting to transition if they genuinely feel if they feel that they they are in the wrong, wrong body, body and yeah. they want to transition that I have no problem with that at all and I would you know I think as a society we should absolutely support people who are going through that sense of feeling stigmatized and trapped and so on I have no problem with that I do have a problem with men saying they are women who have no intention of transitioning and demanding to have the same rights as women. I do have a problem with that. And I have a problem with children who are being actively encouraged to question their gender when children have any number of reasons for feeling unhappy about their lives and who are being encouraged to have hormones to put their sexual development on hold and some of them having surgery, um, which, you know, is a very radical thing to do. I think that a wait-and-see approach is much wiser than this active encouragement to radical and, you know, semi-irreversible change. I mean, I remember when I was young, I basically did... I want... Because all my... My, my brother or my f- f- friends, but I wanted to be a boy. I basically kind of thought I was a boy, sort of that this is what's happening. I'm meant to be a boy. This is a bit well, weird. Well, are you sure my... you probably now would be if you'd been, if you were growing <laughs> no, my, up now? My, my, parents, my parents wouldn't have afforded the, the drugs. They were so tight. Well, your parents didn't have to pay for it. The NHS pays for these things. I do think there's a little Rachel, bit of hysteria here. What, what, First of all, I would, I would start by saying, you know, having been on, on, a, on a sleeper train, I, th- I think they're just a bad idea. Whatever gender you are, <laughs> I'm so glad that I've never been on a sleeper train, and now you've you've convinced I me. I love trains, but people have this sort of romantic notion of the sleepers. No, it's just <laughs> horrible. Just no. Um, but I do think there is a lot of hysteria about this. I really do, and I, 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 I that's not what's happening. Young people are not being actively encouraged. Um, to change their gender, uh, that there is a very, very careful process for this. Uh, watchful waiting is a big part of it. There's a very uh, strong process uh, that young people are going through. Look, for me, the priority in this is um, to keep people safe. As Aisha said, I know how traumatic it is uh, as a process. I know how stigmatized it is. There's so much bullying. There's so much self-harm going on. It feels like it's a profoundly distressing thing uh, to go through. So the priority really is to keep people safe um, from themselves, from self-harm and from the bullying and the stigmatization uh, and the phobias that they are that they are subjected to in our society. I feel like that should be leading this discussion. Um, but I do I do think uh, that there is, you know, people people talk in this discussion about um, the the manifestation of the correct, you know, what what is what is the right percentage? What is the naturally occurring percentage of transgender people in society? And of course, we don't know that. We can't possibly know that because it hasn't reached a level where it's sufficiently desigmatized that we would we would people would be able to people would be 
comfortable. So do you think the number might be higher? So I think that when transgender uh, activists dismiss the concerns over the increasing number of especially young people and especially female to male, um, and a lot of uh, therapists who work in this field are completely overwhelmed by the numbers and don't know what's going on, and they do describe it as a contagion. I do feel like when transgender activists say that's just the natural occurring number, that we actually don't have the answer to that question, that we can't possibly tell. So that is that is the one area that I think, you know, we, we, we do need to watch that. But I absolutely disagree with the idea that children are being encouraged to do this. I don't, I don't actually see any evidence that that is happening. Christina, do you I, want to come I think a, a thousand percent rise in four years, that's coming from somewhere. And I think it's coming from this, the, the whole, a whole new a whole new cultural approach that children are getting. I mean, obviously not in every school in the country, but there is a, there, you know, children are being talked to about this stuff at school. And I think a lot of children, well, I don't just think, you know, I've read and talked to people who said that a lot of children are feeling very anxious about it. I don't think children particularly want to be forced to talk or think very much about sexuality when they're at primary school. And now they are being encouraged to. And I do think, I think that, um, you know, at some universities, they're banning research into um, people who are having regrets about gender gender surgery. Now, you know, we have to be able to have free speech about this stuff, and particularly in our academic institutions. I just think that it's a very, very sudden shift in a society. And to make the shift from um, gender suddenly being all about identity instead of the complicated thing that it was, you know, widely perceived to be before, it was made without consulting people at a political level. And I, I personally find it worrying. I mean, I think one of the things that is really interesting, one of the things you've picked up on is it's very nascent in terms of where this is right yeah. now. We've only really just started just to begin to sort of talk about this and it it feels so big, doesn't it? Because as you say, it's moving from biology to identity and, and how you feel, and you know, which is a big mindset sort of change. And I think one sort of way through it would be to just pick up when you said, Rachel, and what you said, Christina, is, we need so much research into this. We need to be tracking everything that is happening without fear or favour, actually. Every bit of this needs to be tracked from young people, you know, who really, you know, to track whether they really, really do, it was the right thing for them to do right through to people who may regret their decision and want to maybe reverse it down the track as well. I think, you know, from a science point mm. of view, we have to kind of keep a very open mind about it. Now, I am conscious of time, so I just want to... Um, Take us on to our final segment, which is my favourite bit, Heroes and Villains of the Week. Now, Christina, I want you to kick off with your hero of the week, or rather your heroine, heroine. of the week. She's probably, we've probably got to call her a hero now or something. <laughs> <laughs> a shero, a shero, that's a good they, compromise. They are called, uh, they are, she is called Andrea Zafariku. And uh, she is an amazing woman. She, uh, a few weeks ago, she won the Million Dollar Global Teacher Prize um, at uh, the Global Education and Skills Forum in Dubai. I was there. I was programming with a, somebody I met there last year a couple of events about the importance of the arts and education. And she was on one of our panels, actually. And then the next night, um, she went, uh, that night, in fact, she went on to win this prize. She teaches art and textiles at uh, Alperton Community School. She's been there for 12 years. She is an absolutely phenomenal teacher. It's one of the most deprived parts 
parts of the country. And she fights like a tigress for her children. She greets them all in their own language in the morning, 35 different languages. She uh, walks them to the bus stop so they feel safe because there's a lot of gang violence in the area. She goes to their homes to see their families. She gets 95% attendance at parents' evenings because the families can't believe how committed she is to them. And she encourages them to love the arts. And many of these English, most of them, in fact, English are not their first language. And, um, and you know, she's she's just encouraging them to express themselves in ways they haven't been able to do before. And, she's and it's wonderful. And she's made a powerful argument about cuts to creativity from the curriculum and the lack of provision for like basics, dance, arts, music, um, drama in schools. And often that is the thing, that's the difference between like a sort of a really good private school and a, and a state school, it's the provision of those extra exactly. goodies. And I mean, I'm so passionate about this because I think there's so many studies that show if you let children really have a good creative education, there's massive cross-curricular benefits mm-hmm. as well to them. You know, their maths improves, their teamwork, exactly. all of that kind of stuff. So I think we can all agree. Rachel, any quick <laughs> oh, no, thoughts? It's a bit boring. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think, you know, it's, it's, hor- it's awful... Um, that the children are being held back in that way, but it also means that society is being held back in that in because we're not then benefiting from all the talent and potential that would otherwise be unleashed, and the arts becomes very, very elitist, and you know starts to feel sort of inbred villagey in terms of not that, that you only get creativity with diversity. Definitely. Really, so I mean, well, you just look at the moment. I mean, in terms of our creative industries, we are absolutely punching well above our weight and people like Stormzy, you know, grime music is something which is, Mm. you know, dominating all over the world. Mm -hmm. Now, um, I'm going to go on to villains. Um, Actually, no, no, I'm going to stick with heroes. Rachel, your hero, heroes of the week. My heroes of the week are a radical Jewish group uh, called Judas. Um, People might have heard of them through... Just a little bit. (laughs) New, the hysterical response to um, the Labour leader, Jeremy Corbyn, attending their Passover event, which was um, in the papers and in the media of the last few days in a way of attacking Corbyn that he shouldn't have gone, uh, that they were the wrong kind of Jews to do, to do a Jewish event with. Um, uh, so what are, the reason they're my heroes is, first of all, I think they do incredible work in um, fighting fascism and uh, anti-Semitism, as, as they have pointed out, actually, before, before everyone was doing it, before it was cool, whatever. You know, they've been do- they have a great track record of fighting fascism, fighting anti-Semitism. But also the way they handled this media um, hysteria over them, they completely turned it around um, just by doing what they do, which is to essentially troll. Uh, they are radical satirists, if they are anything. Um, and that is that is the way in which they turned this story around. So they had completely subverted all the smears against them by the end of the day, using mockery, using ridicule, using satire, so that by the end of the day, they were actually, um, you know, they were trending, uh, and lots of they people were, were trending. Lots of were... people were sending them messages of support, funding them. Um, I mean, you know, so their you... status was was. Uh, I mean, I have. I mean, I think the way they handled it was was very good, and I thought it was very funny that sort of statement that they they put out. And I, I think the people who were criticising them as being 
bad Jews and anti-Semitic completely sort of overshot Lost the mark. The plot. Absolutely. Lost and the I think that backfired massively. Yeah. And But don't you think it was slightly, you used the word troll, don't you think it was slightly Jeremy Corbyn trolling his sort of, you know, very hurt people in the Jewish community by going to them? Because as much as they're really funny and subversive and really interesting, young, edgy people as well, they have also issued statements and said things like, you know, Israel's a big steaming pile of doodah. And, you know, don't you think that was just given the amount of hurt that there had been in the Jewish community, don't you think that was a wee bit insensitive of Corbyn? I mean, I'm struggling to see what the alternative would be. This was a pre-existing arrangement, a pre-existing invitation. Sorry, I can't come to your Jewish event, dear Jewish constituents, because I think it would look bad. I mean, I feel but, like that alternative Rachel, is worse. Uh, so the other hang thing on, is, hang on, well, hang on. One thing, one thing, one thing. So I've worked for a lot of MPs, and MPs duck out of things in their constituencies all the time. But if he had ducked out of a Jewish event... From his Jewish constituents in that particular week, it would have been used against him. What about if as he had? Well, what, but well, what I was going to carry on yeah, and okay, say yeah. is that it would be an insult if that is the only thing that he did. If he only chose to meet with that group for their Passover event and didn't do anything else, then fine. But as it happens, he is engaging far beyond that. As it happens, he is now trying to um, coordinate a meeting with representatives. Too little, too late. Too little, too late. I think, look, they're funny, these people. You know, they, they're they witty. I always like wit. And, that you know, they've got spirit and they've got energy and good for them on that front. They also have, um, you know poems have published poems and had poems read out that say I won't use the word F the Queen F Prince Philip burn Parliament um, communism now if Jeremy Corbyn is going to choose a group of people to go and visit given all the controversy about um, anti-Semitism it seems to me incredibly unwise to choose that particular group you know they're, they're puerile they're puerile now you know I don't really care whether he goes to spend Passover Seder with, with them or whoever but I absolutely care about how he has his lack of judgment essentially since taking over the leadership in so many ways but in particularly in, in how he has handled uh, the whole anti-Semitism round. Now, I know Rachel you've written this week about how that has always been an issue with Labour as, as indeed it is you know across society but I'm afraid I have to say that I think it is more of an issue with Labour and the hard left than it has been in Labour in certainly in my adult lifetime. And, and to be um, fair even John Landsman and, and lots of figures have, have now conceded exactly. that there is a serious exactly. problem. John Lansman has said there is and you know Corbyn has been I think he's deleted his Facebook now but he was a member of five Facebook groups which were absolutely full of nasty racist anti-Semitic comments that even Lord Carlyle, Lord Carlyle has said may well qualify as hate crimes. It seems incredibly unlikely. Every time these accusations have come up, he has his response has always been, I didn't see it. I didn't look closely enough at the mural. I didn't read any of the comments. Well, look, actually, there comes a point where you have to say, well, either I'm blind or I'm stupid or I am tolerating and being complicit with things I, I should feel not at have this been point, complicit I should say, I'm sure you've worked this out, but Jeremy Corbyn on anti-Semitism was Christina's my villain, villain of the week. My villain of the week. Yes, fairly. Rachel, do you just want to come on that? Like, where does he go from this? I mean, it does seem like it is, you know, it is, does seem like a big self-inflicted wound, all this anti-Semitism stuff. I agree stuff. that his comments on that mural were a serious error of judgment, and I think that he has probably ag agreed with that as well. What, what I, look... 
I don't think half a million people have joined the Labour Party. I don't think half a million people have joined the Labour Party because they're obsessed with the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. I think they've joined it for all kinds of reasons. Some of them will be because of his international politics, but actually most of them will be about his domestic politics. I'm not excusing the sometimes conflation of criticism, legitimate criticism of Israel with anti-Semitism that has been in the left for a while and certainly before Corbyn became Labour leader, it was there. Um, people, I mean, it's been there for a long time. People were putting, Judas was putting out leaflets on how to criticise Israel without being anti-Semitic in 2014, right? This is not a problem that Corbyn created. I do think that um, we are very... You know, if this has done anything, it has made people aware of the extent of anti-Semitism that exists in society at large, as well as in the Labour Party. In terms of the Labour Party, what would your advice be to Corbyn right now to sort this out? Just give us really quickly how just like your top sort of two or three things you would say to him. So what they're they're already doing, I mean, you know, they they now want to sort out the complaints procedure because that has been sluggish. Yeah. Um, So they've had Christine Shawcroft in, in charge of discipline and she, you know, and she has actually... Act, I mean, clearly her behaviour has, there's no way of assessing it except that as anti-Semitic Christine Shawcroft. And she and she did not resign. I mean, the fact that Jeremy Corbyn did not say you need to resign now is yet another failure of judgment. But to be fair, she has, she has yes, eventually, gone. And, but that is eventually the, that is she the right, did. That, you know, she, and I, I think Do as you well know what I was... think is going on here, actually? I think that there are a lot of people, as we've seen in the last few weeks, there are a lot of people who will quite blindly knee-jerk support Corbyn over this um, and be um, say that the whole issue of anti-Semitism has been completely weaponized as a, as a way of tarnishing a him. A smear. Now, that is an unconscious bias, right, yes. over him. But equally, there is an equal unconscious bias and a bad faith assumption going on from people who just don't like him and they don't like his politics and they just assume the worst of him over the same subject, anti-Semitism. And those two voices are actually making it, on opposite sides, are actually making it impossible to deal with the anti-Semitism because that's getting caught in the middle. I don't agree, Rachel. I don't, I don't, I don't agree. I'm not a member of any political party and I try very hard to be impartial about these things and I can't stand the current government. And I have, I'm well, certainly we all not, have unconscious I'm bias. certainly not. I mean, I'm yeah, sure I course, do. I would have anti-Semitism training. Sure, we all have unconscious <laughs> bias, but we are judging that... him on his, on his behaviour here. And I have to say that you would have to go, you know, to look at his act in this whole area and not say that he has fallen miserably short of what anyone might regard as an acceptable approach to this whole thing is that's not bias. Well, look, sometimes we often complain that we have too much agreement on this podcast. But I think today we can say we've ended in a lather of, of disagreement. But look, uh, fascinating discussion. Thank you both so much uh, for being such excellent guests. Um, Christina Patterson, author of The Art of Not Falling Apart, which is just about to hit um, the bookstalls, and Rachel Shabby. I've been Aisha Hazarika. Thank you very much for listening. <laughs>